this month's lesson is called judging ourselves yes so usually we get all like self-conscious and self-deprecating and we don't want to judge ourselves so we're going a little different direction tonight we're going to embrace judging ourselves embrace our imperfections and not just embrace them but understand that they should be celebrated so um last shabbat was a um the shisterman's bar mitzvah and um it was a covid bar mitzvah so there was a drive-by and then there was just a small family um lunch at shul um dina's brother-in-law who is Rabbi Ruvi New from Florida told a story, a parable that I was found, thought was interesting and enjoyed listening to when he said it. And then when I prepared this lesson, I'm like, how did he know that that parable just like summed up this whole lesson? So I'm going to start with it. Um, and it is a parable, like all good parables, about a king who was in the process of nominating his people to his cabinets. I don't know if kings nominate to cabinets, but just go with it. And there were three nominees that had made it through the process and made it to the final round. And um, they had been through all the interviews and the hearings and the confirmations. And yet the king had one final test for them to decide who would get. So he had already decided that these were the three people that were gonna fill the three top positions. They had made it that far, but he had to still decide who was gonna fill the highest position, the second to highest position and the third to highest position. So he had one final test to make this, to help him make this decision. And we just let somebody in. Hey, Lisa. All right. So what was the test? The final test? He possessed three bottles of precious wine. Each one was a rare, unique, vintage blend given to him by his royal grandfather. And he carefully guarded these bottles of wine. And everybody knew that these were some of his most trust, most cherished, treasured possessions. Um, and so the final test was that King took a bottle, took one bottle and gave one bottle to each of these three nominees and express and reminded them and expressed to them how um, precious it was, how treasured it was, how delicious this wine was and how the legend was that, you know, if you drank it, it, it just filled you with so much warmth and good feelings and everything just was amazing if you drank this wine. However, they were not to even open the bottles. They were supposed to keep them safe and return them in a month. And that was going to be their final test. So obviously they took them home and they were very curious about them because they were known to be so delicious and made you feel so good 
And they were curious, perhaps there was even some sort of like magic potion of some sort. And they were all very tempted, but they all knew that this test was that they had to bring back the bottle untouched a month later. So they did three different things to help themselves overcome this test. The first one of the people, the first guy, um, decided that he was going to not even put himself into, he wasn't not gonna get himself into problems. So he put it in a cabinet in his house, locked the cabinet, threw away the key, and then booked an Airbnb like in another, on another continent, traveled and booked his return ticket for when the month was over. And he just checked out and he did not face the temptation of the bottle. The second guy took the um, bottle, put it in a cabinet, locked it and threw away the key. Um, and then the third nominee took it, put it into a cabinet in his, in his house and um, kind of closed it, closed the door and tried to get on with, with things. Um, however, he, it was in his house, the third guy. Um, he knew that he could access it, access it if he wanted. And he would like, you know, after a couple of days, he was just like, I'm going to take it. I'm just going to open the cabinet and look at it and, and close it. And then he was like, I'm just going to put it on the shelf where I can see it and just look at it and remind myself of what the goal of this test is and why it's so worth it for me to withstand this. And so he had it on a shelf trying to like look at it and help himself overcome this temptation. And after a couple of days of that, he just thought like, like just going to crack it open and like taste the tiny little drop. And he did. And it was so delicious. And he just felt so, so good after drinking it. So he just, you know, put it away. The next day he had a little bit more, the next day a little bit more. And two weeks into this test, he looked at the bottle and he had drunk, drank half the bottle. And he thought to himself, like, I have to go back to the king in two weeks and already half the bottle is done. How am I going to face the king? I'm going to be so embarrassed. I'm, you know, what about the, my love for him? And what about his trust of me? And, and he was just like so driven, crazy, driven mad with this, this situation that he got himself into. And um, for the next two weeks, he decided I'm, I have to I, uh, the bottle's already half gone. I cannot go before the king with an empty bottle. So for the next two weeks, I'm just going to like fight with myself as hard as I need to so that at least I can take half the bottle to the king. And he did that. He was able to overcome and restrain himself for the next two weeks. And um, two weeks later, he they all come back to the king. And person, man number one comes, you know, he flies back from wherever he was. He takes the bottle, brings it to the king, or comes before the king. The second guy also takes, you know, smashes the, the, the door, takes the door off the hinges, whatever he had to do, takes out the bottle, goes to the king. And the third guy brings his half bottle to the king. Okay. Now, can unmute yourself and tell me which one you think the king nominated to the highest position, the second position, and the third position? I think the one that drank half the bottle got the highest position because he was honest. Okay. 
Anyone, someone else? Thank you, Adira. Let's hear some more opinions or reasons if you have the same, if you think the same person got it. I think it was more why wait to enjoy yourself. <laughs> you just went for it, right? Like he's gonna enjoy life, all right? Yeah. So you also think that he was gonna get nominated to the highest position. All right, anyone else? You can unmute yourself if you want to tell us what you think. Love to hear some more thoughts. I might not give away that. I might not give away like the, the parable. And then the, in Hebrew, we say mashal, parable and nimshal, like the lesson or the answer. Yes, we're going to get there. But I'm just curious if anybody else has any. No. Okay. So I'm not going to say yes, I'll get there. Well, and anyway, I think the lesson, it's as the lesson unfolds, the answer will become clear. So the goal today is to learn and to appreciate our imperfections and to maintain our happiness despite our weaknesses, our deficiencies, and our wrongdoings. So the first thing that we need to do is actually distinguish. I just said three words. I said uh, weaknesses, deficiencies, and wrongdoings. So we first need to distinguish between two types of um, spiritual anguish, okay? So um, because there's a fundamental difference and we're gonna, the class is gonna address both and how to approach the spiritual anguish, anguish that comes from the one type and the spiritual anguish that comes from the other. So we need to define them because there's a big difference. So one is a feeling, one type of spiritual anguish is a feeling of guilt over a wrongdoing. So um, that's more simply, more simple actually than the other one. It's we did something wrong and we feel remorse, we feel guilt, we feel down on ourselves, we feel bad. That's one type of spiritual anguish. Another one is just this disappointment with our natural God-given flaws. So we didn't necessarily do anything morally wrong, but we, when we look at, at ourselves in the mirror, we recognize a, an imperfection. We recognize that we're quick to anger. We recognize that we're sometimes lazy. We recognize that sometimes we're impatient. We recognize that the list goes on. So that's a different type of spiritual anguish. And we're going to talk about how to address both so that neither of them bring us down but on the contrary, we learn to find joy in both of them. Okay, so if you have a student book, um, we are going to turn to page 136. If you don't, no worries. I'm gonna pull it up on the screen. We're gonna look at this list and identify one trait that does not pose a challenge for you and then select one that does. Now you're just doing um, this exercise in your head, you do not need to write the answers down. You don't need to say the answers to anybody. Um, it's just a personal reflection. And then I will continue. So self, do you, so first we're looking for a trait that does not pose a challenge to you. So if you don't struggle with cynicism, with jealousy, with fickleness, not sure what that means with frivolity, with intrusive, whatever it is, 
that's yours, that you it, that does not challenge you. And if you do struggle with whatever it is, I don't know, anger, um, pessimism, laziness, just for example, then that's one that does pose a challenge to you. So once you've got that, you'll notice that none of these are wrongdoings. They're nothing that, they're not moral wrongs as a, tra as a trait. So if you struggle with one of these, that's again, it's not a wrongdoing, it's not a moral wrong. It's just a flaw that we struggle with. And even though they're not morally wrong, and sometimes we do act on them and sometimes we don't, but even when we don't, they still frustrate us, especially when we see somebody that might not struggle with that. So we might feel very frustrated with ourselves for um, getting angry quickly. And we feel especially frustrated when we come across somebody that's just super chilled and not quick to anger. And sometimes our frustration might have nothing to do with somebody else. We just have some, okay, you know, something happens that makes us look at ourselves in the mirror and we come face to face with an unhealthy habit. And that leaves us feeling low. So what can we do about, um, what can we do so we don't get to feeling this sadness and this depression because of our natural tendencies to, to be any of these things, um, what can we do to stay positive? So to, to, to start on our um, self-analysis, we're gonna look at exercise 5.2, which is if you have a student book, it is on page 137. If you don't, it's on your screen. All right, in this exercise, we're going to give an honest yes or no response to each of the following statements. Now, here's how to answer the questions. Answer each question on its own without regard to its consistency with the other answers. So just for example, you can say, yes, I'm a selfish person and yes, I'm not a selfish person. It could both be yes. Um, so again, try to give an honest yes or no and just ask yourself each question on its own without looking at the next question or without being thinking about what you answered the question before. And I'll just read through them. I am a selfish person, yes or no. I'm not a selfish person, yes or no. There are times I rarely only care about my own existence and well-being. Next one, I know that it's not just about me. There are things that are greater and more important than my own existence. I would never knowingly do something to hurt another person. I know that I've hurt others in pursuit of my own goals. I sometimes feel glad when someone else fails. I don't want to rejoice over someone else's troubles. When I really want something, I find it very difficult to resist, even when I know that it is harmful to my moral and spiritual well-being. And last one, I'm careful to weigh short-term gains against the long-term harm they might bring. 
Okay, so give yourself a yes or a no. Now, you don't have to tell me what you um, what you gave yourself, but just make the screen a little bigger so I can see people. Um, but by raise of hands, please tell me if you found it difficult to give a definitive answer to some to all of these to some or all of these questions. Yes was hard no it wasn't hard okay did you find yourself giving contradictory yes answers to two opposing statements yes no no yes i see some yeses some no's very interesting and okay so this little exercise just reminds us of the complexity of our nature and in order to understand why we're so complicated we are going to learn some Tanya together. So if you've learned Tanya with Rabbi Ari or with anybody, other, any other rabbi or any other um, chavruta, you will know some of what we're about to talk about. This is some basic concepts. They're not basic concepts, but they're basic concepts of Tanya, which Tanya, for those that have not learned Tanya or don't know what Tanya is, it is, um, Tanya was published in 1796 was written by Reb Schneir Zalman of Liadi, who was the first Chabad, the first, the founder of the Chabad movement, um, the first Chabad Rebbe. It is a very revered Hasidic text. It's known as the, the Bible of um, Hasidism. He, the Alter Rebbe, the author, had tens of thousands of followers throughout Eastern Europe, and they would flock, they would write to him, and they would come to him to ask him for advice on issues that they were struggling with in their personal life, in their emotional life, in their spiritual life. And he would, um, he would guide them, he would answer them. And to our great benefit, he um, compiled most of, many of these answers and published the gist of these discussions in the book called the Tanya. And in the opening chapter of Tanya, the, Reb, the Alt Rebbe describes a, a human being by referring to each person having two souls. And we're going to give ourselves a little peek into Tanya learning from learning Tanya from the text in text the 1A, which is from the first chapter of Tanya. Um, Shira, will you read text 1A in English for us? Sure. Each of us, whether righteous or wicked, has two souls. As it is written, I have created souls. One soul originates in unholiness, and all negative character traits stem from it. This soul is also the source of positive traits, such as mercy and benevolence. Okay, so this quote tells us that there's, we were created with two souls, and then it only describes the first soul because if you peek at 1B, it describes the second soul. But in, in text 1A, it's only, it's telling us that there's two souls and it's describing the first soul. Um, and it's telling us that the first soul is um, the, it originates in unholiness. It is the source of all negative character traits, but it can also be a source of positive traits. Okay, and we're going to talk about how how and what kind of positive traits. And we have a second um, 
Actually, let me explain how it can be a source of positive traits, even though its source is unholy and it is the source of negative character traits, how it can also be the source of positive traits, such as mercy and benevolence. So this soul, and when the rest of, in Tanya and in Chassidus, it actually calls it the animal soul. There's going to be a godly soul and an animal soul. And the animal soul is not, it's not, it's not called the animal soul because it's like the soul of an animal. It's very different to the soul of an animal. Um, it's a human soul. However, it, um, it is animalistic because it is, um, it's led by self-preservation and self-gratification. So this animal soul is just, it's very self-oriented. It seeks pleasure, it seeks enjoyment, it's focused on whatever will make it feel good. And therefore it is the source of traits like greed, pride, and those negative character traits. However, because it's, it's constantly looking for pleasure, it's, it can be sophisticated enough to discover that it might be worthwhile to be kind. What does it say? Mer to, it might discover that it's worthwhile to, to be merciful and benevolent because the soul might realize that when it is kind and merciful, it can do wonderful things that bring ourself a lot of recognition and grat you know, gratification and meaning. So that soul can discover that it can do good things, but when it's coming, when it's, those things are coming from the animal soul, they'll always be for an ulterior selfish motive. That's one soul. So it ranges from doing things that are like completely unholy to doing things that are quite positive, but just for selfish motives. The second soul, 1B, Dr. Maxi. Our second soul is a part of God above, literally. Okay. The second soul is a piece of God, literally. And this soul is a, always thinking about its purpose. It's always thinking about its, purpose, its higher purpose. Um, and therefore, because you have this one animal soul that's always look, seeking self-gratification, self-preservation, pleasure, recognition, and you have another soul that is always thinking about its purpose, its higher purpose. So you end up with an internal, we end up, this is happening within each of us, we end up with an internal battle. And it's not necessarily between good and evil, which is sometimes the way we simplify this. It's not that one soul is telling, telling us to do something good, one, one soul is telling us to do, one, you know, one soul, one soul is like, do this mitzvah, and one soul is do this avera, one soul, good deed, bad deed. But sometimes it is a battle between um, good and good, um, but with just two different attitudes. One, one added, the animal soul's attitude is self-serving, and the godly soul's attitude is a God-oriented attitude. And um, the Alter Rebbe, let me see, um, continues to explain what's going on within us using the example of, what do you know, a king. Um, text two, Donna, can you read it for us, please? 
Imagine two kings locked in battle, each desperate to gain control over the same city. Donna, we hear you, but very softly. Can you get in closer to the mic? Okay, sorry. Imagine two kings locked in battle, each desperate to gain control over the same city so that all its inhabitants will obey his every decree. That same battle rages within each of us between our two souls. Our divine soul longs to be the sole ruler of our body and its functions, directing all of our limbs to serve as a vehicle for her. Its rival, the animalistic soul, desires the exact opposite. Nevertheless, the desires of the animalistic soul are ultimately for our benefit, for when we overcome them, we emerge more spiritually empowered. Okay, thank you. So in summary, we are complicated beings and we are often pulled in two different directions. This is because we have two souls, the godly soul and the animalistic soul. And the battle between them is not always, as we said, a struggle between good and evil, but sometimes between selfish impulse and God-centered impulse. So the, then the Tanya, against this background of two souls, the Tanya describes two types of humans, okay? One is, we're just gonna discuss very briefly, is the tzaddik. The tzaddik is the righteous person. And this is somebody who has um, overcome their um, selfish impulse and their nefesh, their animal soul to the point that it no longer has a voice. So they've completely removed it almost. It, no, it does not, it is, it is that, I was gonna, I'm gonna the, in the original parable that we said, it's somebody, well, I'm not still not gonna say it, but think of which person that is. It's somebody who no longer struggles with their animal soul because they've overcome it to the complete point that it's completely silenced. And how, however, this is not, that's the reason why we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this, this particular type of person that's tzaddik is because it's not attainable. It's a very rare, it's, it's very rare and God picked those people and to be a tzaddik, it's not something that we can, it's just not within our reach. So not really any much point talking about how to get there because um, I don't know. I mean, I can't speak for anybody else, but I know that I'm not a tzaddik. So in text, text three is from the Talmud and it just proves or tells us in the words of the Talmud how this isn't, it's really just out of reach. And it's good to understand that, you know, some people, there are these types of people, but they are very, very few and far between. Sandrine, can you read text three, please? God saw that the righteous are few in numbers, so he planted them in every generation. Okay. So when God like looked at his trove of souls, there was only a handful that were souls that were capable of this level of service of God. And so he thought, let me just make it, you know, like, let me put, there's only this number of them. Let me put one or two in every generation and that's it. So they're very rare and they're usually, you know, um, the tzaddik of the generation, the rebbe of the generation, the leader of the generation. And we're not going to spend much more time talking about them because I don't think it's any of us. Well, again, speaking for myself. Um, okay. Then there's a second type of person that the, and the Alter Rebbe spends really the rest of the book of Tanya talking to this type of person. 
And the, now, the tzaddik is, we just briefly described, there's also the other end of the spectrum called the Russia, the evil person. And we're not either addressing that person right now um, or in Tanya, where there's a third category that the Alt Rebbe calls Bainoni. Bainoni is the in between. So the in between, the Tzaddik and the Russia. And the Alt Rebbe says at the beginning that this type of person that we're going to set this Bainoni tap, the second type, is within all of our reach. And how does who, what kind of person is this? He is the constant struggler. Okay. Um, he spends every, he, she spends every day struggling against their negative impulses, their negative traits, their animalistic soul. And however, they constantly um, are successful at making the right choice. So if a negative thought comes into their head, they don't act on it. Um, they don't speak, you know, if, if they want to say something negative about somebody else, towards somebody else, hurtful, hateful, gossipy, the, the, they don't, first of all, they don't let the thought um, say in their head. Like sometimes you can't control a thought from popping into your head, but this Benoni will not dwell on the thought. They'll replace that thought with another thought. They certainly won't act on it and they certainly won't speak on it. So this status, text four, um, this status, Nancy, can you read text four, please? One second, we need to ask you to unmute. Mm-hmm. The status of Benoni is for all people, achieving this status ought to be every person's goal. At any time, any person can be Benoni because the Benoni does not have an aversion for the unholy, which is a feeling that we cannot necessarily control. Rather, the Benoni's task is only to turn away from evil and do good in actual practice, in deed, speech, and thought. In these areas, the choice, ability, and freedom are given to every person to act, speak, and think in ways that are contrary to the desire of the heart and even diametrically opposed to it. Thank you. Okay, so as we said, one second, let me let Charna in. Um, hey, Charna. So Tzadikim, Tzadik has a special gift that he's given to from God. And they are able to develop this um, aversion to the unholy. So, but that's the tzaddik, okay? That's not what we're talking about today. The Benoni faces this um, spiritual glass ceiling that they can never, as hard as they work on themselves, they can never break through. They cannot change the way that they feel. Um, they cannot change the thought, uh, sometimes a negative thought that pops into their head. They can't change what, they're attracted to but in that struggle in that battle with whatever negative thought or temptation came into their head 
they are in that battle, they are able to succeed. They're able to overcome that animal soul in that moment. And the animal soul never actually weakens, but it's, it, it battles at its full strength. But we are, and we all have this, this is attainable to each of us. We're all able to, every, in every single battle, we have the power to overcome. And obviously this, you know, reaching the level where you overcome every single time is, is very difficult. Um, I don't think we have to like go with an all or nothing. So each it's attainable. That's what the altar is telling us, but we can just, you know, take one battle at a time. So in this, in this, in our original example about the king and the three nominees that he had that he gave the bottles of wine to, the one that just took himself so far away from the bottle is like the tzaddik. He has, he did not, he didn't face his temptation ever in the course of that month. He was never, he was never interacting with a unholy thought or a temptation. Um, now, so just in, in, to summarize, um, the tzedekim are those who work hard and eventually conquer their animal souls. But you have to have a special soul. You have to be chosen by God to be able to do this. And each generation only has a few. The rest of us are born with souls that don't have that capacity. And however, we're still able to be to reach the level of benonim, and that is complete control over our thought, speech, and action. But the the our godly soul and our animal soul remain in this perpetual battle. Um, now, understanding this, what we just spoke about, and the reason why we explain this, I see you, Donna, one second, is going to help us overcome that feeling that we asked at the beginning. How do we know that we're flawed humans and still not get depressed about it? So understanding this is what's going to help us um, not get frustrated. Okay, Donna, go ahead. Thank you. Do we know who the are in Um, so in our generation, so like there was not our generation, but like, you know, we know that Moshe Rabbeinu was the leader of his generation. He was a tzaddik. Mordechai in the story of Esther was the tzaddik in his generation. Um, you know, I, as a follower of the Revi, to me, he's the closest example. I, I, I don't know his soul, but he was a tzaddik. Um, he's not alive anymore. So who now today is alive that's a tzaddik? There's also, I, 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 you know, personally don't know. There's also the concept of a hidden tzaddik. Like some people have this um, soul of a tzaddik, but then they don't become, they don't, they don't become famous. They, they, so there were some generations that it was more obvious and you know, everyone knew and some, some not. Okay. So now we, knowing that we are created with, with these traits that we don't have the ability to, to get rid of, we just have the ability to overcome. We are going to talk a little bit about how to make sure that we still don't reach this feeling of frustration and depression because we're constantly battling this. So if you look back, if you have a student book, 
If not, I'm going the next exercise, it's a fun one, is this. All right. Exercise 5.3. Realistically, to which degree are the following scenarios likely to frustrate you? Okay. So one, the most frustrated, two, somewhat frustrated, three, hardly frustrated. Okay. So your car breaks down. Yeah. You're in a rush. You are late for something. You are in the middle of nowhere. Your phone's about to die. And you now need to find an Uber, find a cab, get somewhere. Um, and are you going to be very frustrated? Somewhat frustrated. Not at all frustrated. Okay. You want to buy it? Next one. You want to buy a new car. You need to buy a new car. Your car keeps breaking down. And you, there's this particular car that you want and you just cannot make it work financially. So the car of your choice, you cannot afford at this point. Number three, okay, so will that make you very frustrated, somewhat frustrated, not at all frustrated? Next scenario, you cannot afford the luxury car of your choice. So like the car that you, there's this other car that you absolutely love and it's just beautiful, but it's a luxury car and you, um, you, you know, you've known your whole adult life that you are not in that financial caliber. So how much does it frustrate you that when you need a new car, you can't afford this, I don't know, whatever luxury car is the luxury car of your dreams. How much does that frustrate you? Very somewhat or not at all. All right, next. Would be way easier if you didn't need a car at all and you could just travel by private jet. However, you can't afford one. Would you feel very frustrated that you cannot afford a private jet? Somewhat frustrated, not frustrated at all. If you had wings, you wouldn't even need a jet. How frustrated are you that you don't have wings? Okay. Someone unmute and tell me the pattern over here. Going from immediate personal need and urgency, which is which we will get frustrated to things that are not ever attainable in our wildest dreams. Okay, so you, the more you need it, the more frustrated you'll feel. Yes. Okay, thank you. Surprisingly, what frustrates me most is I can't fly without something to help me fly. So that, yeah, that would be. Okay, Ajira goes opposite direction than all the rest of us. We love you. Who else? Well, I think that, you know, Part of the scale is um, one is something that could be really important, like, you know, let's say in the context, mm -hmm. it happens, you know, when you're trying to go to a job interview so that you might be able to afford other things on the list and this happens to you, which would add a difference to the level of frustration. And as you move on down the list, I mean, a lot of these become things that 
either, uh, you know, I don't perceive that would be possible for me to do or have anyway. So I don't find them as frustrating as I do the first one, which is kind of more at the level of my everyday life. Okay. Thank you. So even if you would consider how wonderful when you're stuck on the road, it would be to have wings at that moment, that's going to frustrate most of us less than the fact that we don't have just a reliable working car. Because This is because we're not frustrated by what we don't have, but we're frustrated by not having something that we have an ex- we're not frustrated about something that we don't have, we're frustrated about something that we don't have that we have an expectation for. So when you're looking for a house, another example, here here we use the example of a car, but when you're looking for a house, you're not gonna get frustrated that your home isn't Buckingham Palace. You're gonna get frustrated if you can't find a home that is what you expect or you what you expect to afford and then it's not affordable. Or it's a little, those are the things that's gonna, that are going to frustrate you and you can't get what you expect. Um, so the greater the expectation, not the bigger the expectation, but the more you expect to have that item, then the greater the frustration will be if you don't. So, you know, we always talk about my kids always like, oh my gosh, how do people live without air conditioning, right? I don't, I mean, summers might've been a little less hot, but there was just a, a different expectation. So now that we expect to have air conditioning on in our house all summer and in our car, it's very, it's much harder to, to not have it. So when you, ex, in, in, when you expect to, when your expectation of yourself, just to bring this circle back around with this idea, when your expectation of yourself is to be perfect, then not being perfect is going to be very frustrating because you have that expectation and you you frustrate. And every single day when you look in the mirror and you're like, I expect myself to be perfect and I failed this, this, and this way today, you're going to feel very frustrated. But that is the same. That is just like looking for a house and expecting to be able to purchase the Buckingham Palace. That's not realistic. And so just like not being able to purchase Buckingham Palace as your next house should not frustrate you. Neither should the fact that when you look at yourself, you're not perfect. That should not cause any frustration because there should be no expectation for perfection because we weren't created with the ability to attain perfection the same way that we don't have it in our bank accounts to attain Buckingham Palace, or we don't have it in our, whatever we do, there's nothing that we can do to sprout wings the same way. And that doesn't frustrate us because we know we can't do it. So the same, the same is true with perfection and with not having any character flaws. There's no way for us to not have any um, imperfections, any unhealthy habits, any flaws, any negative traits. And so therefore the kind of meditating on that should help us to not um, to not be sad about it. And to the contrary, the Alter Rebbe says, these thoughts, um, when, you, when you think about 
like, oh, I wish I was perfect. Those thoughts, I wish I was better. I wish I was less of this and less of that. Those thoughts do not come from a good place at all. Where do those thoughts come from? What if you're sitting in, you're looking at houses and you're like, I wish it's really sad and frustrating and depressing that I can't purchase Buckingham Palace. The only way that you're going to say that to yourself is if you actually think that you're the queen of England. Otherwise, why would you be trying to purchase Buckingham Palace, right? So you're only thinking it's so frustrating that I can't buy private jets if you think of yourself as somebody who is lives on that level financially. So if you look at yourself in the mirror on a character level and you think, oh, I wish I didn't have this, this, and this, really what you're thinking is, I wish I was the Queen of England. I wish I was perfect. I wish I was a tzaddik. And you're not supposed to be a tzaddik. You weren't made with, you weren't created with the ability to even ever become one. And so let me see where we are because the next text that um, the Alter Rebbe says what I'm saying. Um, I'm going to pull it up. On the contrary. Leia, there's uh, something that really bothers me about what you're saying. Go ahead. Who are they to say that? Who is the Rebbe or his father or grandfather or whomever? Who the heck are they to say to us, we don't need to be Tzadikim? They are already Tzadikim. So it's like sitting there on their high throne saying you don't need to be up here. So who are they? So they, I can answer who are they. They are people, they are the Tzadikim of the generation who, who know the map of our souls. And so they're there to tell us, this is what, you can be doing, this is what you should be doing. And we're going to get to in a minute, this is the advantage of your service versus the service of a tzaddik. And that's really what brings you the joy when you understand the advantage of that. So you're saying on their high horse and I'm, we're going to end up turning it around and seeing how advantageous our service of God is. So if you are looking at yourself and thinking, why am I not perfect? And you're looking and you're, to, that's like looking to buy Buckingham Palace, um, the Alter Rebbe in text five and... Um, who would like to read? Um, I have a shared screen and I can't see everybody's little windows. So um, if you would like to read, just unmute, please. Charn, are you there? I can read again. Thanks. Okay, go ahead, Sandrine. Oh, uh, to oh. the contrary. Okay, You'll do the next one. Okay, okay. go ahead, Sandrine. It's a to the contrary, this despondency over your spiritual struggles stem from inflated self-assessment from not recognizing your place. This delusion leads you to feel badly that you are not on the level of the perfect person who is certainly not bothered by such foolish thought. Know your place. You are very far from the level of the perfect person. Rather, you should aspire to always be a Benoni and never for a moment to fail in thought, speech, and action. This, after all, is the lot of the Benoni and their task in life, to struggle against and subdue their negative impulse. Thank you. Okay. So um, the Alter Rebbe is explaining that the frustration is coming from a self-created unreasonable expectation that we have of ourselves. And the reality is that we are strugglers and 
then the question that we're going to continue with is, but why? But why were we created to struggle? What is the advantage of having to struggle? What is the result of our struggles? And why is that something to celebrate? And why is that something that God celebrates? So, um, so much of our stress comes from unreasonable expectations. Once we know that we are who we are and what's within our range of possibility and what isn't, like which car we could afford, which house we could afford, what level of perfection we can reach, then it eliminates a lot of our disappointment. Okay, does that make sense? Not yet. So understanding the divine objective behind creation as a whole is going to, um, okay, so we're saying, but why, right? Why are we created to struggle? And to answer that question, we're going to understand the objective behind creation as a whole. So we're not just why we were created to struggle, but why God created the world. And that will give us a better understanding of what the reason and purpose and joy in our own personal daily struggles is. So um, Kabbalah, I'm just going to skip a little bit because I want to get to everything. Um, Kabbalah describes that when God created the world, there's this like this chain of worlds that were created in every world, in every one world links to the lower world that links to the lower world that links to the lower world. Um, like the, the holiness decreases in each world. And the lowest world is our physical world. Um, and our world is the most imperfect. Um, it is the most materialistic. Um, it's inhabited. It's the only world that's inhabited with physical beings. Um, and the question is, why did God create this? chain of worlds ending in our physical most imperfect world and we skipped a um a text but i'll read it to you um and i'll put it on the screen the purpose of the evolution of the worlds and their descent from level to level is not for the sake of the higher worlds rather the purpose in this the purpose is this lowly world for so it arose in god's desire that he should derive satisfaction when the negativity of this world is vanquished and its darkness is transformed into light so god did not need a space of perfection he had that he did not need to create anything beyond himself. As soon as he created something, with each creation beyond himself, there was a, a decline in holiness. And our physical world is the lowest. However, why did God create it? Let's reread that last line. It arose in God's desire. So God suddenly got an urge to, and to derive satisfaction when a negative space is of, and a dark space is transformed into light. So no, none of the higher perfect spiritual worlds could give God the same amount of pleasure that something uh, that the taking something evil and something dark and something negative and changing it into holiness and light can give God. So he wanted to experience that pleasure and therefore he created this world and he created us so that we can do this, these, this act of um, vanquishing darkness and transforming it into light. And that gives God pleasure that nothing else, even the most perfect world, can give God. Um, 
And so how do we conquer darkness? How do we transform darkness into light? It is... Um, it is um, not something that the tzaddik does once he becomes a tzaddik because he's no longer battling with darkness. It is, um, it is done through all of us and that struggle that we spent, that we've been talking about until now. So every time that our animal soul, which is functioning because that's the way God created us to function at full capacity, stands up and, you know, tries to get us to do whatever it is that is self-serving or selfish or negative. And we um, stand up to it and we tell it, I'm not going to dwell on that thought. I'm not going to act on that thought. I'm not going to speak on that negative idea. Um, that is when we or, or we feel, you know, we, get, we, feel, we know we're angry, we know we struggle with anger and we feel angry and we overcome it. Or we know we struggle with laziness and we don't succumb to it. So in all of those moments is when that darkness is being transformed into light. And nothing, nothing gives God pleasure like those moments. And so if we are on the level of a tzaddik and if we are never struggling, then we never have those opportunities. So then these Rebbe's didn't, weren't able to give Hashem that pleasure? Correct. I so, don't. I think they gave Hashem more pleasure than anything we can give Hashem. Okay. So this, this, this really kind of turns out on its head, but I hear, I hear you. We are, we're saying that, and, and also really it doesn't matter because it's like, why dwell on if you, on, on the, Backing and you know, sprouting wings or functioning on the level of a tzaddik when it's not within our reach. So what we, I think, what we do, you know, what, what we may have done before this lesson was look at the struggle, similar to the way that we think about school or any process where it's the what we're trying to get to is the end result. So you, you know, you kind of like kids will or kids in college or whatever. If you're going for a degree later in life, like you'll you'll go through that you tolerate school because of the um, the end. So you'll tolerate the means towards so that you have that end. So you have that product. So you have the results. Um, so, so we might've thought that we'll, we're okay. We'll tolerate the struggle in whatever area of our personality because it will, it will help us in eventually overcoming it or eventually implementing some lasting wow. change. Um, but we wouldn't before this class want to, we wouldn't, we might not have been okay with struggle that leads to nowhere or struggle that we are, will never overcome. That might've been very, very frustrating to us. But now what we're saying, what we're learning from Tanya is that it asks us, Tanya, the Alta Rebbe is asking us to look at our struggles differently and um, to not even be trying to get to a place of no struggle, um, but to embrace the fact that every, every battle with unholiness is this opportunity to give God this, this greatest pleasure. Um, an example that I, that I read that was really, that really helped with this idea was imagine somebody, imagine you're at the gym and you're running on a treadmill and somebody who never saw a treadmill 
approaches you and says like, what are you, why are you running on this thing and getting, you're not getting anywhere, right? You're just, you're running, 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 and you're staying in the same spot. If it was somebody who, I don't know, came from the moon. Um, and this person might say like, in fact, if I walk very slowly, I'll get further than you're running. So if someone from some alien approached you at the gym and said, why are you running? You're not getting anywhere. That question would seem ridiculous because you know on that treadmill that you're not trying to get somewhere. You, you're running and you're, you're running on the, in that spot and you're sweating is that, that action itself is what's enhancing your health. So you're not running to get somewhere. In the same way, our struggles and our character flaws are um, not a means to get, reaching perfection, but they are a means towards perfecting the world. And you actually need that struggle and you need that battle in order to perfect the world, in order to, which is, the, which is God's purpose for creating the world. The, the purpose for God creating the world was that the world will reach perfection when holiness overcomes darkness. Um, so our, again, our flaws is what give us something to work with. Otherwise we have nothing to work with. Um, okay. There's one more idea that I want to share, but if anyone has anyone has anything to say or to add or to question, please go ahead now because the last idea is going to be um, something that we spoke about at the beginning, but just go ahead, Shira. Um, I, I've heard this sort of thought before, so you kind of made it sort of gel in my head about how like sometimes I get upset with the idea, this idea you're presenting of God created the world so that we could, you know, extol God and tell God how great he is. But the other point of that is that God already had perfection, like you indicated, and seeing us struggle, like when we struggle here and we create something good, God doesn't even have that ability to struggle. And so we all have had, I hope, that feeling of overcoming something or, you know, getting towards a goal and having something created at the end or, you know, helping someone do something and have it be a positive thing. And yet God can't do those things. Love it. Exactly. It's exactly that's that's why God created this world because there's something that we can do that God couldn't do and or couldn't um, get the pleasure of of without us and that struggle. Um, thank you. Beautiful. Exactly. Okay. Anybody else? Go ahead. You can you can raise your hand. You can unmute. I'm gonna finish off with one final thought, which was at the beginning we said there's two types of spiritual anguish. There's the type that comes from just looking at ourselves and and recognizing and a natural inborn tendency to you know do something, be an unhealthy, be a, an, some, something negative or something unhealthy. But then there's also the distress over actually doing something wrong. So. 
um, yes, we might be inclined to get angry. And every, every time our anger starts to arise within us, we can, especially once we understand these ideas that we spoke about tonight, we have the ability to stop that thought, to overcome it, to put things in place that help us. We can, and, and we can now even appreciate the fact that we just had that internal battle. Instead of being frustrated ourselves that, oh, I'm an angry person. Now we, if, if we, but sometimes we're going to get angry and we're going to shoot something out and say something that is hurtful to somebody else. And now we actually didn't just have like a, mar, a wrong, we didn't have like, it's not just a, a character trait that God gave us that there's nothing we can do about. Well, now we acted on it. So now it moves into like another, another category, which is actually wrongdoing. So it's a little different. There's also a way to, um, to deal with that in a way that can ultimately cause us joy, but the process is a little different because in this case, um, there is a there is a need for us to recognize that we did something wrong and to feel like just a little bit and the right amount and at the right time and in the right way guilt and remorse because that will lead us to teshuva. And I don't we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it now, but it, the 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 um, Kabbalah and Torah is very specific about what that guilt no, should not. look like and when that okay. guilt is um, is healthy and when it's I'll not. So if you're supposed to be doing something else and suddenly you're overcome with guilt about something that you did wrong yesterday and now it stops you from doing something that you're supposed to be doing right now, then it's just misplaced. And it's just your, you know, it's your animalistic soul trying to get you down, further down this but if you're, you know, at the end of the day and you're saying the end of the day Shema and you're just going over in your head what you did and you take a moment to recognize a wrongdoing and you, you know, you kind of recommit to trying harder the next time to handle it in a better way, then it's very appropriate. So um, the idea of, dis- of anguish or, or distress or sadness over a wrongdoing, there's a time and place for a little bit of guilt and there's time and place for a little bit of remorse. But even so, um, the Talmud teaches that um, once you do that Teshuvah, you also can turn it into something that's not only like you did Teshuvah about, so you can kind of like have a clean slate, but it also can turn into something that's positive, that can bring you joy. So it brought, it was some, so you did something, it was making you feel guilt, remorse, distress, sadness. You did Teshuvah in the right way. Now, Right. Not only are you able to clear clean the slate, but you're also able to actually turn that wrongdoing into something positive and into something um, virtuous. Okay. And now, how do we do that? That's going to be our final thought. Um, text ten. Okay. Text ten. Cookie, do you want to read that to us? Oh, um. Charna, you're there. I see you. Text 10. All right. Great is Teshuva as it transforms a person's deliberate sins into errors. Great is Teshuva as it transforms a person's deliberate sins into virtues. Okay. Thank you. So the final thought that we're going to end with is that when you do something wrong, you have the um, capability of doing teshuva and kind of like cleaning the slate. And you also have the opportunity to do teshuva in a way that that actual wrongdoing can become something virtuous. And I'll give you an example 
um, of what that would look like. So um, imagine a dad and his eight-year-old daughter have a nightly ritual, okay? Every night at bedtime, Sarah's dad comes to her room, tucks her into bed, and spends 10 minutes reading a book of her choice. Um, it happens sometimes that David has to work late, that this dad has to work late. His name is David, and he's not able to be home. So he always makes sure to call his daughter, explain to her that he won't be there at bedtime, and that you know he'll make up for it the next night with a longer story or two books. So that's their ritual. That is what they do every single night. One evening, um, this dad, David, is out and he's it's after it's after, you know, he signed a really good deal that day. Um, goes out for with his work friends after work and drank a little, whatever, nothing terrible, but he's just um, looks at his watch and he realizes that he's not going to make it home for his daughter's bedtime. Um, and just this one time, he just decides like, you know, today was such a big day at work. This is such a great deal. I'm out with my friends. I'm not going to be there. Um, I'm not even, I'm not even calling. I'm just going to like skip this one. And he doesn't even bother calling. And um when he comes home, then when or when he's you know comes home, she's already sleeping. The next day, he's shocked at how devastated his daughter was that he didn't show up. And he had thought in his head, like, okay, she'll be disappointed. It's our ritual, but like, he didn't even he didn't imagine that she would be this hurt and this devastated. It was way more than he expected, and he realized to himself how much he had how he had underestimated how important this um nightly story tucking in quality time he completely underestimated how precious and how special it was to her so he felt terrible obviously and not only did he you know read her two stories the next night but he also makes a very very firm resolution um, to, to, to not do it again. Okay. But well, not, but, but so he's, you know, he's, he recognizes how, how hurtful it was. He decides he's never going to do it again. And now we're going to just take it one step further and see how he transforms it into something virtuous. Truth be told, it was becoming a bit of a chore. He didn't, he was just kind of like got to the point that he was going through the motions. His mind was another thing. He was thinking about work, thinking about wanting to be over with the story so that he can go, you know, just relax, watch something, drink something. But now that he realized how precious it is to his daughter, his attitude about the whole thing changes. And he no longer sees this 10 minutes with his daughter at night as a chore now he approaches it from now on with a completely different attitude and he's fully engaged and he is like understanding understands how how this this 10 minutes nourishes their bond so had this mistake never happened he would never have had to like face his wrongdoing but he would have kind of continued doing it with the same attitude and that mechanical story reading was only because he failed his daughter 
that he, and so badly, that he now has the opportunity to do the same thing with a much, much, much deeper level of engagement and their whole relationship improves. So this is the, the same um, model could be applied to all different circumstances and relationships. Um, sometimes like a, a, you know, a, a, a period of struggle, of difficulty, or even a period of, of doing something hurtful can then bring two people even closer together. Um, you know, a reformed criminal um, can become like a can become a activist and somebody who um, a, a couple that has a you know a hard time in their marriage can overcome that and then that can that can strengthen their bond. So this is what the Talmud means when it says that teshuva leads to an opportunity for not just growth but that the whole whatever whatever you're doing your relationship with god now becomes even better and even stronger because of that because of that wrongdoing and when you look at your wrongdoings in that way and when you turn them around in that way definitely not something to feel depressed about yes you had to this dad had to be sad for a little bit so that he would you know make up for it and also really just have that um in that introspective um moment of truth with himself and recognize what he was doing he obviously had to feel guilty, feel remorse, fix it, but it also not only got fixed, but also completely transformed the whole experience to be more positive. Um, and just to bring things full circle, which guy in our original story do you think the king chose into the, nominated into the highest position? I'm mute. Right. The number three number three why because he had actually struggled and then um realized his struggle and was sorry for what he had done and was able to overcome the struggle and at least return with half a bottle exactly because he the other two didn't even didn't really battle the temptation this guy drank the wine, right? Understood the, felt, experienced the allure of that, of that wine. And yet for the next two weeks with a bottle half, half finished, was able to face that bottle every single day and struggle and overcome out of his love for the king or out of, because of his relationship with the king and Yes, the other two guys ended up with a cleaner, you know, and a, a fuller bottle. But who knows if they would have been able to withstand that temptation. Um, and they did. The king ended up, as you said, chose the person that struggled, that experienced the struggle, that faced their struggle, that had to force themselves every single day to live with it and overcome and, you know, 50% of the time he did over, overcome, 50% he didn't, but that was what the king wanted, somebody that real, somebody that struggled. And so it's the same with God. God wants us and our struggles, and um, that ultimately is what brings God the greatest pleasure and the greatest joy. Um, that concludes our lesson. If anybody has anything to add or anything to ask, Please unmute and go ahead. If not, 
Apogee all good night. Thanks for joining. But I'm really sorry, but the idea that this is all coming from someone who is exciting, who has not struggled, it still doesn't hold water for me. I'm sorry. What do you mean it's coming from a tzaddik? One who and the fact that there's some people that don't struggle because they were chosen by God and given like a tzaddik, the soul of a tzaddik, it bothers you? Someone who does not struggle can't sit there saying, oh, you need to struggle. Well, how do you know? You don't know what it's like. How would they, how would the Rebbe, the altar Rebbe, who wrote this whole thing, who is he? he like you, in your own words, He's on his high horse. Who is he to speak about? It's great to be in mud. Okay, so just to clarify, the tzaddik isn't not and not necessarily born at the level of tzaddik. They're just born with the ability to reach the level of tzaddik. So with as because they had because it was attainable for them to become a tzaddik, they still go through the work, but then can eventually silence completely their. Um, their animal soul so there's a lot of they they have to be able to and that also gives them the ability to relate to us in fact there's a story of one of the chabad rebbies that someone came to him once and just you know we said at the beginning that people would go to the rebbies and share their personal struggles their spiritual struggles and someone shared a struggle that they had that was so terrible um and and the rebbe didn't wasn't able to find it within himself to answer that person until he himself, it took him a few days, locked himself in his room until he himself found something, some sort of experience that wasn't obviously not on the level this person had done, but something that could relate, that could help him relate to this person's struggle. And only then could he guide him. So they're not born tzaddikim, but they're born with the ability to reach that status, whereas we aren't. How do you know? I don't know. I don't know for you. I just know for me. So as we said, there's hidden tzaddiks um, and they're also because their soul, it looks so unlike our souls and they're there to, to guide us. Um, it's typically not one of us, um, but thank you. Um, anybody else have anything to say? Questions, stories. I wanted to add um, from that, so then we can look at it from a positive way. That if we feel like we've been burdened, perhaps with more struggles than someone else, so in a way, that's the positive. Exactly. Bring it. Bring it on. That is. That is exactly it. It's, you know, you, it's like we said, right, we said at the beginning, sometimes seeing somebody not struggle with something, when we ourselves struggle with it, that makes us, that will bring us, that'll make us feel frustrated. Now we're able to turn that over and say, well, an opportunity for me to, to struggle and to overcome. And, and even if we don't overcome, just the struggle is what, is what, is what, is what God wants us to be doing every day. Struggling. All right. Thank you for the class, Leah. Thank, Thank you, you for coming. So nice seeing you all. Good night. I appreciate it. Thank you. And share. All righty. Good night, everybody.